Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for friends of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candlethal, PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I am Paul Essan, a PhD student in Hebrew Bible in the program at Yale University. Our co-hosts Richard Wren and Tim McNinch are enjoying some time off this week. But never fear, listeners, we're still here <laughs> to bring you insights, preaching tips for the third Sunday after Pentecost, June 18, 2023. But I understand we've got a couple of choices for the first reading this week. Is that right, Rosie? Yeah, that's right. The uh, Revised Common Lectionary offers two different sets of Hebrew Bible readings throughout the season following Pentecost, also known as Ordinary Time. One strand of readings in Year A progresses semi-continuously through Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and it highlights the theme of covenant. The other strand of readings that preachers might notice is related thematically or is a complementary reading to the Gospel lections for those dates. But additionally, you might notice that this week, there's a parenthetical next to the semi-continuous reading from Genesis 18, 1 through 15, which offers yet a third option. And that is to extend Genesis 18's birth announcement of Isaac to finish out with Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7 in the birth of Isaac. Uh, (laughs) That sounds a little complicated. So out of the three options that we have, which route would you recommend preachers take? Yeah, I am so glad you asked, Paul, because (laughs) of course, I have an opinion, uh, which listeners can take for what it's worth. For year A, I recommend that preachers take up the semi-continuous first reading with that theme that I mentioned of covenant. Um, And this is the opposite advice that I gave last summer uh, with year C's readings. But hear me out, okay, preachers, because year (laughs) A, I think it's different, right? So year A takes us through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, And without a strong sense of the covenant, as the Hebrew Bible describes it, I'd argue that we're really missing out on some of the distinctive arguments, the distinctives of Matthew's gospel. And that is primarily the view of Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant, which is writ large throughout the Hebrew Bible, right? Mm -hmm. So these semi-continuous first readings in year A, they try to draw a covenantal through line all Mm -hmm. the way from creation through the promises made to the patriarchs and matriarchs, and then it marches through Moses and the Exodus stories and draws us all the way through the laws of Deuteronomy and the promised lands of Joshua's conquest. So Mm. it's quite a majestic thematic sweep through the Hebrew Bible. But what it really does is it supports a more fulsome appreciation of Matthew's gospel. Mm, That sounds like a pretty strong endorsement for the semi-continuous reading this week. So I take it that we are looking at Genesis 18, 1 through 15, the story of the three mysterious strangers who promise a son to Abraham and Sarah. You got it, Paul. So Cool, cool. It's also known <laughs> as the passage in which Sarah laughs, right? And so we're going to talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that because it's spotlight on Sarah's experience of this event of infertility and of the promise of Isaac, I think gives Genesis 18 a lot for preachers to work with. And I am really not sure I'd recommend taking this rather long passage already of 15 verses and then tacking on another seven verses from Genesis 21, as the RCL suggests, to round it out then with Isaac's birth. The gospel reading this week is also quite long, and preachers might be thinking about that too, for Matthew 9 verses 35 all the way out to 10 verse 8, with the parenthetical Mm -hmm. option in the RCL again of extending the gospel reading all the way out to verse 23. 
that's a lot of possible scripture verses this week. That's right. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, right. So my advice uh, for preachers is I'd stick with Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15 and let that be enough. There's a there's a ton to work with there. You sold me there. <laughs> so what do you want to tell us about the story from Genesis 18? Yeah, you know, I was struck anew this week with how the story starts out. So it starts with a really simple but generous act of human hospitality that is extended on a practical level to three strangers traveling in what is described as an arid and a hot part of the world. The attention to space and place paints, uh, for me, a really vivid picture. As Mm -hmm. Abraham rests under the shaded oak trees of Mamre, he lifts his eyes and suddenly sees three men in front of him, almost like Mm -hmm. apparitions in the heat of the day in the sun. He rushes toward them, bows down to the earth, and addresses them with such respect as lords or masters as Adonai. And three times he uses the deferential particle na in Hebrew that's translated here into English as please, but that's not quite right. In verses yeah. four through five, it's right. So it's imna, it's alna, it's yachakna, like if if you please, oh, please, uh, let me take this please for you. In other cultures and languages, like my own South Indian culture, there are words or particles like this in our language, which make the address more clearly respectful. And it struck me here in the Hebrew that that is really present. So with the help of his whole household, including Sarah and his servants, Abraham rushes around to make these strangers feel welcome. He rushes to wash their feet. He rushes to make his guests comfortable with food and drink. And meat Mm. is a luxury in this culture, but Abraham doesn't hesitate to offer this rich food. Right. And it struck me again, it just sort of reminded me um, how much this kind of hospitality, which can almost be overbearing, yeah, yeah, was yeah. modeled in my own <laughs> South Indian home. Right. So yeah. my family of origin bent over backward to treat guests in our home with a similar kind of deference, rushing to provide the very best. That's right. And of course, Abraham is literally entertaining divine beings here. But the traditions of hospitality that I was raised in also honored the guest as a manifestation of the divine. Um, And and don't get me wrong, there's a a lot here to praise, but there are plenty of things that were abusive about the hospitality that I saw, or potentially so, including the nearly invisible labor of women and children. And I see some of that reflected here too in the Hebrew passage as Mm -hmm. Sarah and the servants get enlisted as extensions of Abraham's home and his generosity. And so, Paul, I, I wondered if your own culture and experiences of hospitality might have some parallel, too, with this passage. Uh, certainly, certainly. A lot a lot of what you said is very, 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 very similar to mine as well. Uh, I, I remember my parents reserving the best of everything for guests, uh, mm-hmm. plates, meat, drinks, you know, everything. And anytime there was something special, uh, like a special meal at home, it's either it's Christmas or it's someone's birthday or we have a guest. So you could guess that is one of the three. <laughs> Uh, The divine elements of hosting guests is also true in my culture as well. Uh, There is a saying in Tree that, which basically means, you know, if you serve a visitor or a guest, you have served God, right? Mm. Essentially, my people believe that hospitality towards strangers will never go unrewarded. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I, I that is seems really present in this passage of Genesis 18, or at least it struck me so, because in the first part in verses one through eight, we see Abraham's hospitality toward these three mysterious strangers, and it's not clear what or who they are. Mm-hmm. 
but eventually it becomes apparent that they're just they're not regular visitors they're not regular right, humans yeah. in verses 2 16 and 22 even in the english the visitors here are referred to as ordinary men as anashim but in verses 1 and 13 one of these figures at least appears to be mm-hmm. yahweh uh, the god of That's israel right, yeah. and this blurring of boundaries that you've described in your culture and in mine between divine and human in the guest is part of what draws us into the mystery of the story as the identity of these travelers slowly gets revealed and unraveled. In the second half of the story, in verses 9 through 15, Abraham's extension of generosity seems to provoke a reciprocal act of generosity from the three guests. They inquire about Sarah by name, which they surprisingly already know, and then pronounce with divine authority that she will soon be pregnant with their son. Mm. Now, Sarah overhears their words and laughs privately to herself, knowing that she is beyond her childbearing years. And in what appears to be a breach of etiquette, so that struck me as strange too, the stranger breaks this third wall and confronts Abraham, asking him why his wife Sarah would laugh at this. But how would the mysterious stranger have known her inward reaction and why confront her in this oblique way through her husband? Right, Right, so there's something here that's being played with in the text because a stranger violates some unwritten norms of hospitality by addressing Sarah, the female in the house, and her behavior so directly, right? So Sarah denies laughing out of fear only to hear the stranger repeat the promise and insist again rather ominously, that he knows that she laughed. Laughter is such a prominent uh, characteristic of this text and even the texts that come after that. But this is not the first time we've heard, you know, an announcement of Isaac's bread, is it? Uh, Nor is it the first time that it's been met with laughter. I recall Abraham also laughing at some point. (laughs) That's exactly right. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's it's a point of contention here, right? Because another version of this story appears in Genesis 17, verses 15 to 22, the chapter right before this one. There, Abraham laughs so hard at God's announcement of Isaac that he falls on his face when he hears it, right? So in both versions, there seems to be this comic tension, this laughter Mm -hmm. that uh, rises between God's promises and the gap that exists in human reality Mm -hmm. because Abraham and Sarah are, are old. So in Genesis 17, verse 17, after Abraham laughs, he says to himself, very similar to Sarah, Mm -hmm. can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Question: (laughs) Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Very natural question, right? So similarly here in Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughs to herself saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old? While Sarah seems to get called out for her laughter, though, Abraham's laughter gets no real censure uh, in the chapter before. And the name Isaac itself means he laughs in Hebrew. So maybe that's the real kicker in this joke. Uh, Now, I still love this passage in Genesis 18 for Sarah's response. And if I could just dwell here for a moment on the Hebrew, it is both, I think, delightfully euphemistic and graphic Mm -hmm, at the same mm -hmm, time. So, right. So the Hebrew word that's translated as pleasure, Edna, uh, is related to the same root from which the word for Eden came. And it hints toward this idea of fertility, of abundance and delight. The Hebrew word here, that word that's translated as pleasure, gestures both toward the bodily connection between sex and pleasure, while also hinting at the obstacles to sex and pleasure, fertility and pregnancy for women 
and mm-hmm. men because she's talking about both her age and her husband's age, especially uh, the kinds of obstacles that come up after a certain age and after menopause, which I think she's hinting at. It reminds me too of the mature question that Mary reportedly asked in Luke's gospel when the angel announces that she's going to have a kid. Mary asks, well, how can this be since I've never been with a man? Both of these women on different ends of a spectrum, one very young, one very old, are not naive about how sex and procreation work. They are confused by the announcement of their imminent pregnancy and each woman challenges. How could this be? Real questions that I'm sure every like individual who understands the phenomenon of procreation would ask. Uh, but I had not seen the connection between Mary and Sarah. Uh, but now that you mention it, both women are knowledgeable about the basic workings of reproduction. Their reactions are entirely in line with what they know or what they knew. In both situations, it also seems that we have stories in which God interacts with the male partner and the female partner. Joseph receives a dream, Mary a visitation, Abraham and Sarah are dressed separately and then together in Genesis 18. Yeah, that is a a great insight, Paul. And I think you're right that there is this, uh, there's sort of an egalitarian way in which Yahweh speaks to both partners in both of these stories. Yahweh asks Abraham why Sarah has laughed. Again, I I mean, not asking Sarah directly, but addressing Sarah Mm -hmm. through Abraham. And then Yahweh asks this strangely worded question in response to both Sarah and Abraham in this passage. In the NRSV, verse 14 is translated, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, in the Hebrew, there's more play in this question, right? So, So the question can also be translated, is it too difficult or too hard for the Lord to do? Or even, is anything hidden from the Lord? So there's quite a bit of play there. Is God confronting Sarah's hidden thoughts and inward fears, what she has not dared to say aloud? Or is there something fundamentally miraculous in the way that God works that's just beyond our comprehension? Mm-hmm. And maybe all of these options are present in this loaded question. Is anything too wonderful, too difficult, or too hidden for the Lord to do? Mm. It strikes me as an incredibly multi-layered revelation. And it's not the only time that God hints at the underlying surprise in who God is. Mm-hmm. In Judges chapter 13, verse 18, during the course of Samson's birth announcement, Manoah asks the angelic visitor's name and gets a similarly enigmatic response. Why do you ask my name when it is too wonderful, or it can be translated as as hidden? That same root word, pala, in the Hebrew, which can mean wondrous or difficult or hidden, appears again as a description of who God is. That idea, that strange and wonderful and hidden and a little scary sense of the nature of God, has really captured my imagination this week. Yeah, that sounds like you might be leaning toward a preaching possibility there. So let's go for it. How might we think about the preaching task? And are there any pitfalls you want you want to especially warn preachers away from? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you're so let's start with the warning, right? Mm-hmm. So I really want to warn preachers away from reflexively interpreting Sarah's laughter as a negative, as simply disbelief or disparaging laughter, while contrasting Abraham's laughing in the chapter before as a positive. 
a faithful or a holy laughter. Mm -hmm. I do not think these texts bear out that simplistic contrast between the quality of their laughters. Abraham and Sarah are, yes, both depicted as laughing, and both stories offer sympathetic details, each time acknowledging their advanced age and the improbability of Isaac's birth without divine intervention. Mm -hmm. God doesn't punish Abraham or Sarah for their response, but instead reaffirms the promise firmly. While Sarah gets singled out for attention in Genesis 18, the text does not condemn her for her laughter. It seems even to affirm it, underscoring absurdity in its details, even in Isaac's own name, mm -hmm. which he translates to he laughs, right? So right there, it seems as though, hey, we are all laughing at this we very are. strange yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're sharing in a laugh. There is a refreshing honesty uh, in the humor in this passage about women's and men's bodies, about sex and pleasure, fertility and pregnancy, and even menopause. I, I, I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. And for preachers, there may be women and men in your congregation that have never spoken aloud of their own struggles in this realm, past and present. And something honest is being hinted at in this story, something of Sarah's painful and bitter journey. And I don't know how comfortable preachers might be about a sermon that acknowledges infertility, sex, and aging, but there seems a real opportunity in the text here to address this if that's available to for you in sure, your congregation. For sure. On another note that might be easier for preachers, though, we're three weeks post-Pentecost, and we have been celebrating the birth of the church, right? So we've already got maybe these two birth stories. We remember the strange and absurd circumstances surrounding the birth of Isaac alongside the strange and absurd circumstances that surround a birth of the church. This week's gospel reading includes the story of Jesus naming the 12 men who would be foremost among the disciples, commissioning them to cast out unclean spirits and cure every disease and sickness. But among that strange lot of 12, first is named Simon Peter, a man who would deny knowing Jesus three times, James and John, the brothers who once reportedly asked to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village of unbelieving Samaritans, mm -hmm. Matthew, the tax collector, and of course, who can forget Judas Iscariot, who ultimately betrays Jesus. Between the improbable birth of Isaac and this Matthean account of the calling of the Twelve, I think there runs a common theme. Is anything too wonderful or too hard for God? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Is anything hidden from the Lord? In a world where rationality and logic reign supreme, God seems to enjoy upending expectations and making us laugh on some level. Yeah. Preachers might help us all remember that both the first reading here and the gospel passage, they both revel in surprises and mysterious revelations. Oh boy, a lot of wonderful thoughts here. I'm sure preachers will find a lot of great, great things to pick up on. Well, Rosie, that's a great place to leave our listeners. Thanks for your work on this passage. My pleasure. Friends, we hope you found something helpful in our discussion today. Remember, you can find an episode on just about every passage in the lectionary by using the search box on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. While you are there, Take a peek at our mesh and make a donation to help keep the podcast going. And hey, a big thank you to everyone who has donated. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this helpful, leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you find us. Until next time, I am Paul Lesser. And I'm Rosie Candlepole. Have a great week.